Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and Happy New Year. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. For our first show of 2024, we're going to be exploring O'Connell Street in Dublin and uncovering the history of Ireland from the stories of its statues and buildings. We'll also bring you the history of rugby in Leinster from the 19th century to the present. And to end the show, we'll return to O'Connell Street to discuss the history of the spire, the alternatives to Nelson's pillar that were suggested over the years and how close we came to having a monument to Patrick Pierce, James Joyce or Brian Brew. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. We begin tonight's show with the history and life of Dublin's iconic O'Connell Street. As we know, O'Connell Street is at the heart of Dublin. Through name changes and revolutions, destruction, rebuilding, even riots, it has remained at the heart of the story of Ireland for centuries. And a new book explores the people, the history, the buildings and the stories behind the main street in our capital city. The book is called O'Connell Street, The History and Life of Dublin's Iconic Street, published in hardback by the O'Brien Press. The author is Nicola Pierce, And Nicola, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. The move from Sackville to O'Connell Street, how significant was that as a change? Well, it came very late. I mean, you know, I'm, I was dealing with, I mean, this is like a crash course of Irish history for me. Um, and I just imagined that O'Connell Street was called O'Connell Street for much longer than it was. So it's only received a name change in 1924. Dublin County Council had been trying to kind of push through the, to call it after an Irish guy. Um, and it took until 1924, which would have been an amazing, I mean, this is way after 1916 too. It was right, quite shocking. It was one of the things that shocked me about it. Um, that it only was changed to O'Connell Street in 1924. But of course, the statue had been there uh, for years and years earlier. And I have to say, it's one of my favourite statues on the whole road. And it's quite a feature of O'Connell Street. When you stand back and look, you know, row of statues all the way down the centre of a large street. Um, it's just, it is, I just love it. I think it is a beautiful street. I know there's plenty we can say to knock it. But ultimately, it did start out beautiful. So... It was the first time it appeared on a map was 1728, was called Rada Street. It was just a medieval dirt path. So then we have Luke Gardner up here and uh, he was a man of vision. And I always equate his beginnings with the beginnings of Sackville Street because we don't really know anything about Luke Gardner. So pretty much he'd nothing to brag about. Um, his father could have been a merchant um, and that's all that we know. So I think he looked at that dirt path and maybe, come, you know, of course it's the novelist coming out, might have compared himself, you know, to my beginnings. I can create something here. I've made a man out of myself, a really wealthy, successful man out of uh, my own life. I can do this for this little street here. So he builds 400 houses and it becomes the place to be. Uh, names the street, of course, Sackville after this guy who was Lord Lieutenant of Ireland twice and possibly Gardner was good friends with him because he actually named one of his uh, children after him. So he builds these 400 gorgeous houses, uh, widens the street and then builds this mall down the centre so the wealthy occupants of the houses can take their walks around away from prying eyes of uh, native Irish people. And there was actually a guy at the time who said, you, you knew the Irish guy walking down Sackville Street, he was the one running as if he had his tail between his legs. So it was a very... Um, a uh, very posh place, basically, and a lot of uh, English people running the country at the time. So then we have Nelson's Pillar was built in 1808, and then that would be joined 10 years later. Same architect, Francis Johnson, the GPO, opened in 1818. And this epitomised the look of Dublin, which in fact was pretty much the look of London, because after Gardiner passes on, the Wide Street Commissions take over his vision and basically put a map of London up on the wall of their office and uh, probably stick through it, which is why then I suppose it was genius of Porrick Pierce to decide if I'm going to have a rebellion, I'm going to do it in the GPO. 
And you mentioned the statues. Let's talk about the statues. Okay, so there's Daniel O'Connell at one end, there's Parnell at the other. Yeah. Uh, we have the one that's no longer there uh, for Nelson. And yeah. uh, the pillar was, was such an iconic part for, for, for up, to, up to the 1960s and James Larkin. So you can tell a lot by studying the statues. Absolutely. Uh, at some point, the right German writer Heinrich Boll was over and he didn't know who was standing on the top of the pillar and he was trying to get somebody's attention to ask. It was a misty morning and nobody would stop. It was 10 o'clock in the morning on Cycle Street and nobody would stop. He bought himself a newspaper, went back and sat in his hotel and opened up the front page and there was an argument going on to get rid of Nelson replaced with the Virgin Mary. So, I mean, this is a conversation that's been going on for years and then we have uh, Mr Sutcliffe in 1966 pretty much blowing it uh, kingdom high or else the... The army did after he was finished with it. Um, but the statues, yeah, are really interesting. I mean, I have to say definitely Daniel O'Connell's statue is my favourite. So the sculptor was Thomas uh, John Henry Foley. And there was a lot of complaints about him. He won the commission and uh, he left, he's Irish born, but he left Ireland uh, when he was 18 and went to the Royal Academy. And he was the best, best sculptor of his day. So he'd already done Oliver Goldsmith, Edmund Burke, Henry Grattan. Uh, Victoria loved him. He'd done Prince Albert. And he was brilliant at uh, showing uh, statues putting him in a very characteristic pose. So I'm assuming he read something like Sister Mary Ann Francis Cusack's this wonderful nun who wrote a massive biography of Daniel O'Connell. I think it was the first biography of Daniel O'Connell. I'm assuming John Henry Foley would have read it because he includes in the statue um, O'Connell's love for education so he's holding a scroll in his hand also O'Connell had been sent by his rich uncle over to Paris uh, unfortunately landed in the middle of the French Revolution whatever he saw put him off violence for life so we have O'Connell standing with a pile of books as opposed to bullets anything he was going to achieve he was determined it was going to be through peaceful means and that's all in the statue if you just look uh, go and look at it I would show pictures of the statues to children and kind of invite them to read it as if you were reading a page of a book, what can we tell about this man uh, based on how he's been portrayed and then the other end of the street I absolutely love the Parnell statue that's unveiled in 1911 by a guy who had a French father and an Irish mother and he was now living in America, the family had left when he was six months old to escape the famine and um, again he gets this commission and he was one of the best sculptors over there he was the favourite of Abraham Lincoln so uh, you can see the work that goes into something like this he uh, had extensive made extensive notes about Parnell he had a load of maps about Sackville Street kind of all the measurements around him and then he even contacts Parnell's tailors in Dame Street and asks them to send over the last set of clothes that uh, Parnell would have worn and then we have this wonderful statue now unfortunately he had planned um, San Durande and I'm sure I am saying it was wrong he had every intention of being here standing on Sackville Street when they unveiled the Parnell uh, monument unfortunately he died of cancer three years before it was unveiled the amount of criticism that poor statue got when it was unveiled somebody called it an eccentric um, somebody wrote a, a skit like Parnell saying I'd never wear trousers like this um, and then there was a, a wonderful story that people used to joke about the fact Parnell was wearing two coats there must have been a fierce draft at that end of Collins Street um, but the sculptor was long dead by the time uh, it's receiving all this criticism you also have a wonderful chapter on murder and mayhem. And while O'Connell may have uh, wanted to avoid violence, violence certainly hasn't uh, stayed away from O'Connell Street throughout the years. And of course, you know, it's a key site of battle in 1916. Uh, it's a, a significant time during the, the lockout. We, of course, had the more recent riot uh, a few months ago. But talk to us about some of the, the significant uh, events going all the way back to 1854. Yeah, I think this is, it's a sad story, but it's a wonderful story. Um, so we're talking about the predecessor of Cleary's, which was the Palatial March. March, just this huge monster superstore. Now, it shared a building with the Imperial Hotel. And in August 1854, an elderly doctor and his wife come to stay in the hotel and take in the sights of Dublin. And they befriended the porter. And the porter was given their box of gold coins, why, oh, why, oh, why, uh, to look after them. And the 
uh, the porter must have been a bit of a gambler. He gambles, uh, opens the box, gambles everything and filled it with coppers, uh, thinking that that was going to keep the doctor going until he got back home. But the doctor obviously must have opened up the box, discovered that all his money is gone. So then the porter ropes in a friend and they lure the elderly doctor and his wife down into the basement of Cleary's and they both, they're both strangled, which is horrific. So now in 1986, we have these lovely little ghost stories. So apparently behind the Cartier counter in Cleary's, uh, one sales assistant found a woman dressed very unfashionably wandering around after hours and told her that the store was closed with that the woman vanishes. Then we have another story. We have members of the ITGWU coming in for a meeting and then refusing to go into the room because they've just seen a ghostly figure go in ahead of them. Staff uh, frequently found an elderly gentleman kind of lost and wandering around after hours and security men um, attested to hearing foot steps at night time. So that was kind of the first big deal. The next thing then we moved to 1913 and we've got Larkin standing in the balcony of the Imperial Hotel making his speech uh, up against William Martin Murphy who uh, ran the tram company and Larkin has uh, tried to appeal to everyone to come out on strike. He's been banned from making any speech. He'd just been arrested. He's allowed out and he's determined to be there on 31st of August 1913. That's where he said he was going to be. That His friends had moved on. They chose another location but Larkin is absolutely adamant I'm going to talk from the balcony of the Imperial Hotel. I think he makes maybe two, three sentences and he's arrested again. But the police have been hyped up all weekend. They've been told to expect trouble. William Martin Murphy had gone to the DMP and asked for help. So what happens is we've got, it's a Sunday afternoon, it's a summer uh, Sunday afternoon on Sackville Street. We've got people strolling around window shopping and the police just go mad. Eyewitness said that some of them definitely looked drunk. They looked like they'd been penned up for ages. They hadn't been allowed to take off their uniforms, so they were kind of on call for the previous days and they just went ballistic. They beat people bloody for up to two hours, some witnesses say. There was quite a few injuries um, but I think within those two hours, there was more support Garner for Larkin than if he had been allowed to make his entire speech from the balcony in 1913. You also have a chapter on the, the on the cinemas uh, on the street. And again, you can tell the history of the city and maybe even changing forms of entertainment and changing social life in Ireland by the history of the cinemas. Yes, so the Savoy, which I've won gone, I would have gone through. I mean, I'm originally from Tallow, but I went to the Savoy a lot. My dad absolutely loved uh, the cinema would bring us in there. That opened in 1929. And it's the oldest cinema in Dublin today. It's not the first cinema. Over tw- 20 years earlier, um, I didn't know this, James Joyce came over to Dublin and opened up a cinema called the Volta, where Penny's is today on Mary Street. And it was a bit of a disaster. He was bringing over um, films he'd been watching in uh, Italy and just thought that Dubliners might enjoy uh, the foreign fair and they did not uh, but that would have been the first cinema in 1909 but it didn't last so we've the cinema the Savoy opening up in 1929 um, and it was meant to look like Venice and the first film shown was on with the show was the first all talking all colour feature length film and then we moved to 1936 and Gone with the Wind is on over 300,000 people turned up in eight weeks to see Gone with the Wind and then we have another interesting episode in the Savoy in 1934, the first royal wedding that's been used as a media spectacle. So we've Prince George marrying Prince Marina from Greece and Denmark and it's been shown on the cinema. We've 50 protesters naturally turning up at the Savoy and they ripped the screen to shreds. Um, so again, like just something like a cinema, uh, so much uh, happens there. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to Nicola Pierce, our first interview of 2024. It's a wonderful new book, O'Connell Street, The History and Life of Dublin's Iconic Street. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back. We're Talking History. Leinster is one of the most successful and influential Irish sporting teams of all time. But there is so much more to rugby in Leinster. And for the first time, a new book compiles its rich history from its foundation through the amateur years to the club's many spectacular championships in the 21st century, all the time exploring Leinster teams at every level. The book is called A History of Rugby in Leinster. It's published in hardback by Marion Press. The author is David Doolan. And David, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. You know, it's a departure from the last time we were talking about the Irish and the Fenian invasion of Canada. So uh, it is a departure now to be talking about uh, rugby in Leinster. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, as I, I, I always point out, I've got an eclectic interest in, in, in history. Um, I, 
uh, Irish America was where I kind of started out uh, looking at. But as part of my interest in in the Irish immigrant experience in the US, I had done some sports history and, and how important uh, sports were for for the diaspora um, in terms of thinking about identity and and, and all of those things that that come into play around uh, class and gender and uh, and identity, as I said, for for the Irish over there. So um, this was a, a the project was a, a postdoctoral a Newman Fellowship uh, at the, at UCD. So when I came along, I was delighted to to get the opportunity. Uh, to look at the history of uh, the game of rugby in, in in Leinster, and you were able to work with the wonderful Paul Rice. Yes, yeah, no, and uh, uh, a huge thank you to Paul. Paul is uh, the probably the preeminent historian of sports in Ireland and a fountain of knowledge, and uh, was very very helpful at the beginning, directing me uh, to the the right sources, um, and was influential as well in in organising uh, access to the Leinster branch arch- archive and, and Leinster were very generous to open up all of their records for this project. And a lot of those archives are digitised now. Yeah, no, anybody who's interested um, as part of that that fellowship, um, we digitised the Leinster branch records going back as far as they have them and they are now housed at the archive in UCD um, and as I said, digitised, so they're very accessible. So anybody interested in the history of, of rugby, Leinster rugby. Um, it's a great resource. Yeah, it's great. Now, I don't know where to start. Do we start in 1879 with the founding of Leinster Rugby or do we go further back to 1854 with the founding of the rugby club in Trinity? Yeah, I think 1854 is is the starting point really for um, the first official club, uh, rugby uh, football club in, in Leinster. You know, there's a, a bit of an argument, I think, between uh, DUFC, Dublin University Football Club and Blackheath about who's the, the oldest rugby club in, in the world. Um, and Trinity uh, DUFC claimed that uh, they are actually the oldest uh, club that never had a break. So they, they, they were always, always in existence. Uh, but uh, yeah, 1854, uh, Dublin University, the first club, um, which was started by uh, young, obviously, students who had uh, learned the game in, in the school of rugby, uh, in, in rugby school uh, in England. Uh, and whether uh, Irish students who had, had studied in, in rugby or, or English students who had ended up in Trinity College, um, they came back and, and uh, started the club in, in 1854. There, there had always, the record showed that there had always been a, uh, some sort of a football game played in Trinity, or not always, but for a long time previous to the, the actual club. Um, on the college green there um, as early as 1811 I think there, there was a record saying that there was a, a ball kicking games going on on the college green but the actual club with the rugby rules uh, was 1854 and it grows from there. And it grows from there and 25 years later Leinster Rugby is founded. So what exactly did that mean? Yeah, so I, what happens really is the international games uh, um come about so you have um the first one in England versus Scotland but players at, at, at Trinity and, and and beyond at that stage there's um a lot of the schools around uh, Leinster are, are playing as well uh, and just to point out I, I suppose that in the school game back in in the 19th century um it was a mixture of the kind of senior uh, boys the senior students and the staff would be on the team so it wasn't just uh, you know 16 17 year olds playing against each other it would have been uh, older older students uh, and some of the the younger staff members would have been on the team, but the when, as I said, when the international start, um, Ireland um, recognises oh we we want to play we would be great to have a game against uh, England and Wales and Scotland, um, so from that um, you you get the I suppose a, a, a more of a a nationwide vision for for rugby that there needs to be some sort of organisation in place uh, to make that happen, uh, and then from that um, eventually uh, we get the the provincial branches who will look after their own clubs uh, in in the four uh, provinces, um, and then they can select the best players and bring them all together for an Irish team. So that's the the, the, ver- the catalyst for it is actually the the, the vision of of playing international rugby. And in the years ahead, there are real tensions with the GAA and, you know, being playing foreign sports and so on, even though someone like Eamon de Valera, you know, played rugby and I think followed rugby. But yet there is that tension between, you know, the nationalist sports as they were seen and, and, and sports like rugby. Yeah, I, and um, interestingly, of course, we have uh, not just uh, Eamon de Valera, 
Um, but Michael Cusack, uh, the founder, one of the founding fathers of, of the GAA, who was a, a big rugby fan initially too, and he played rugby himself. Uh, he, he thought that uh, young Irish men should play rugby uh, as well. Um, the, prior to to the foundation of the, of the, of the GAA, so and and, and Eamon De Valera played with when he was in Blackrock, uh, was a keen rugby player, and Kevin uh, Barry, yeah, Kevin Barry, of course, as well, had played with, with UCD and Belvedere, and so we have this sense that you know there's a very clear split. Sometimes we imagine a very clear split between uh, the sports people played and their their political identities and so on. And when when we dig down, it wasn't really the case that. The, the GAA, of course, in 1905, brought in the infamous ban uh, that if you played foreign sports, uh, rugby uh, and or soccer, um, that you would be kicked out of the GAA. You could no longer be a member. Um, but it, 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 you know, they tried to enforce it, but a lot of the times players found a way around around the rule. Um, people who fell in love with the game of rugby weren't interested in that side of, uh, you know, the political side the, uh, of it. Um, they just wanted to play for for the love of the, the sports. So. There are some great stories in the book and some remarkable incidents and one of them occurs in 1916 when uh, Frank is a Frank Browning who's yes. a major figure in in, in, in the rugby world. Uh, well, tell us what happens. He, he, he ends up getting killed. Yeah, so Frank Browning was a, the president in, in 1914 when World War One breaks out actually it hit the kind of sto- story starts there perhaps with, with Frank Browning. So one thing that Frank Browning um, I mean, he 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 clearly did identify the game of rugby with with his, a kind of a unionist identity himself, um, uh, and and he was president of the IRFU. But uh, one of the things he did in, at the outbreak of World War One in 1914 was was to put a call out to all rugby players in Leinster and and in Ireland more broadly speaking uh, that they should sign up and and in his in his mind fight for king and country. Uh, during World War One, uh, and in that context, he actually uh, basically he was too old himself to go fight. Uh, so he was part of the Home Guard, and um, so he wore the British military uniform, but was based in in and around Dublin. So, uh, but in in 1916, then to kind of jump forward a couple of years, um, when the uh, Easter Rising breaks out, uh, Frank Browning and the Home Guard were actually uh, out doing practice drills in in the uh, Dublin mountains, uh, and they were called back in. Um, back into the city um, during 1916, and on the march uh, uh, from from the Dublin Mountains back in towards the the city centre, uh, Frank Browning is actually uh, shot and killed um, because the uh, the rebels uh, um, see him see the the a bunch of men walking up the street in in the British army uniform, uh, and and of course they they open fire. Uh, and Browning is shot, and he and he, and he dies a few day, days later. Uh, and he was actually shot by, uh, somewhat ironically, I suppose, Eamon De Valera's um, uh, unit. How did the First World War affect rugby in Leinster? Because so many of the of the players, so many of the young men, went off to fight. Yeah. So what you had, uh, they were called pals units. Um, again, kind of going back to to Browning's call, um, and, and this happened in 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 England, of course, as well, where. The, the rugby uh, administrators had um, advocated for rugby players to have their own units in the army. They say we, we should sign up, and so you you have an example of that in 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 uh, Leinster as well in in Dublin, where we have a, a pals unit. Uh, now there, there's plenty of other rugby players that sign up, uh, not in those particular you know that don't they don't identify as rugby players signing up. They they just join join the cause, um, but there is a unit, uh, a pals unit. Um, and it's a really interesting story that they they are one of the first um, group of soldiers that are that are sent into World War One, and they become cannon fodder in some ways. I, I say it might be uh, maybe a little bit harsh to, to to use that term, but there's a a story that comes up uh, of a guy called Jasper Brett, who is an Irish international young man. All the records, the rugby records, suggest that he's one of the best rugby players. He's got a great future in rugby and people are really, really excited about Jasper Brett as a rugby player. And he wins his one and only cap in 1914 uh, and then gets sent to Gallipoli. And he um, basically has a a breakdown, suffers from what we call PTSD today, um, shell shock in World War I. Uh, And when he returns home, 
for rest and re- re- recreation or and or to try and recuperate before he's sent back. His shell shock is undiagnosed and he ends up taking his own life because uh, he can't face going going back in into the in, into the the battlefields basically in World War One. So so you have that, those stories. There, there was a lot of rugby stopped completely in Ireland uh, as well. So the the IRFU and the Leinster branch uh, again were one of the first um, organisations to to stand up and say we can't play any rugby. Uh, during the war, because it, you know, it's we we should be uh, contributing some some other way. Um, so rugby, uh, adult rugby was was stopped. Uh, the, the schools rugby continued, uh, but there was no games uh, and no interprovincial games either. And you've uncovered some powerful stories as well from the War of Independence and and the Civil War as well. Where in the Civil War you had people playing against each other or on the same side even during the yeah in the games and then all fighting against each other afterwards. Yeah, no, and it's a quick little little anecdote which I think is fascinating. Um, there, there's a story, uh, um, and I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure what what the clubs were, but. Uh, there was a game uh, going on one Saturday in, in in the height of the Irish Civil War, um, and there were two players uh, uh, playing together as as far as I can remember, but had very very different political viewpoints. One pro treaty, one anti treaty, and the anti treaty player was allegedly uh, being tracked by um, by undercover police uh, because he uh, his involvement was a little bit more than just uh, vocal vocal support. Uh, um, uh, for the Civil War. Uh, so the, the anecdote goes that apparently the pro-treaty player uh, recognised in, in, uh, among the spectators, I know that guy, he's, with, he's, he's, he's on the police force um, and, and he's probably here to arrest my, my, my teammate. Um, so the game goes on uh, and somewhere towards the end of the game uh, there's a whisper saying, you better... As soon as the final whistle goes, you better uh, uh, make a run for it because there's a certain somebody uh, in probably a Trilby hat and, and a trench coat, I can envision this, in the crowd um, who's probably going to uh, um, arrest you. Uh, so I, I, it's kind of a funny little story and, and the anecdote goes that uh, anti-treaty player, as soon as the whistle goes, he vaults a wall uh, and is gone. Uh, and the uh, the police officers left left frustrated. So it, it's kind of a, a fascinating little story. Um, but one wonders if if uh, it was about uh, the following week's game, and 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 we don't want to lose one of our best players. <laughs> that as well. There always is this association with rugby being elitist and the connection with schools rugby and so on and it's seen as uh, the preserve of only uh, certain types of people certain types of schools and 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 I know they tried an awful lot in recent years to shed that image but it has been a powerful one and and it was kind of there from the beginning yeah I mean again the records show uh, rugby at the outset was um, set up to be an exclusive game uh, and, and and that's quite clear uh, um, at the uh, you know the turn of the century there there were rules uh, set up um, to try and, and, and keep a certain cohort playing the game uh, in in the English context that led directly to the split between rugby league and rugby union um, you know so there were rules around amateurism for example um, so working class players um, uh, found it very difficult to to play rugby, even though they wanted to, because a lot of the time the games were either midweek, uh, like on a Tuesday, or on a Saturday morning, uh, and and people uh, who who were working were usually working six days a week, or at least a half day on a Saturday, uh, and they they couldn't get away for the games. So th- there's that that kind of deliberate deliberate mechanism set up to to keep it exclusive, and then when when working class players begin to ask for, well, you know, I'll play. But uh, you know, maybe I can get some sort of compensation for missing a half day of work and so on. Uh, and the amateurism rule was kind of rolled out and say, no, that's if you're paying a player, that's professionalism. Um, uh, and there, there are anecdotes of of administrators in rugby saying we either keep the working class out or we abandon the game altogether uh, um, as well. So that that's the history. So that's there from. Yeah, the late nineteen uh, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Um, but in an Irish context, uh, that that cha- changes quite quite quickly, um, as more and more clubs around Leinster um, um, are founded, uh, especially outside of Dublin. 
the the kind of socioeconomic, political, and, and even religious intermixing uh, is much more common, uh, and it's needed for for the, in order for the clubs to to survive at all and and to get fifteen players on on a pitch. Um, so it it begins to break down at least um, informally, if you like, um, that that kind of exclusivity. Uh, it's much more. There are a couple of to be a little bit critical, maybe a couple of senior clubs who try to hold on to that exclusivity. But I think when you see the growth of the junior clubs in particular all around Leinster, it's not so much an issue uh, at all. One other example I can give um, around a mechanism again that was set up to. To keep rugby as an exclusive game would have been around um, Sabbatarianism, that is no no uh, sanctioned rugby on a Sunday, for example. But by the 1930s, you have uh, important figures in, in Irish rugby who are pushing back against that. Um, uh, GPS Hogan is, is, is one name that stands out. Um, uh, Judge Conroy, Kerr Conroy, uh, David as well, who are advocating for expanding the game and, and ensuring that as many people will partake in and and play play the game of rugby as possible. And actually, and go back to your your original question in the schools, um, it it takes maybe a little bit longer. You know, there's the schools cup. It becomes one of the main focal points in Leinster rugby, the Leinster Schools Cup, uh, and especially with those senior clubs, it is seen as the well, if you like, for. Uh, recruiting rugby players, they only look at at, at the private school system, uh, and and that is something that that has to be, I suppose, changed over time, uh, kind of worn down. Advocates, uh, rugby advocates, and again, I think this is a, it's a grassroots movement, which is really fascinating about the history of, of rugby. It, it does come from the grassroots. You have administrators who are maybe set in their ways, but with the junior clubs and the grassroots, and 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 when rugby starts in in schools outside of the private school system, they are advocating for more attention. Like we have a a rich pool of players here that we need to make sure we don't. They, they don't become disillusioned. And it's a story that's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing because, you know, over the time you've seen the move to the professional game. You've seen uh, women's rugby becoming such a, a hugely influential part of the game as well. So it's a sport that has has changed and I suppose it's had to have changed. Uh, yeah, the professional era um, ch- changes everything. Uh uh, for sure. Um, actually, in fairness, before the professional era too, as I said, there, the, it's a, it's an evolution. The, the kind of barriers are broken down, uh, including uh, women's rugby. I think looking at Irish history more broadly, Irish sports history more more bro- broadly, um, regardless of what the sport was, uh, women had to kind of fight for their place. Uh, um, uh, you know, there, there was uh, lots of resistance to, to women's participation in, in many different sports, especially... You, you, you have stories from um, you know the Catholic Church were were suspect about uh, about women um, playing sports that perhaps it would in, in interfere with what they envisioned would be their uh, their role in society and so on uh, and rugby I think in particular um, because of the nature of the sport right we we imagine or we can envision it's it's um, it's a very very physical sport there's a lot of impact and and, and so on. Uh, and of course, especially in the early days, you know, the, it was probably a lot rougher um, in some ways. Uh, and and the, in the realm of rugby, it was kind of hard to imagine uh, um, women women participating because of of the view of of gender roles and and and, and the physicality of it as well. Um, but in the eighties, you've got you've got examples of of uh, things like charity games where women participated in charity games. Uh, I think for young girls were probably playing as well uh, unofficially uh, on boys' teams. So there, there was always women's interest uh, in playing rugby, of course, uh, in terms of spectatorship as well. Uh, the backbone of, of many of the clubs were was a support of the women. Uh, and then I think around the 1990s, late 80s, 1990s, you have more of a... Uh, a push uh, um, that women demand recognition from their clubs that to be allowed to use the facilities to be allowed to use the the the, the pitches to play games um and 
it 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 evolves as 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 we said, uh, and more and more women become uh, uh, players uh, throughout the nineteen nineties. And David, a final question: the relationship with Monster that seems that rivalry seems to uh, well, it seems to define so much of the identity, and it seems to be such an integral part. And probably is no harm having a a rival like that who you can uh, always look forward to whenever you're playing. Yeah, and again, from if you go back in history, I mean the the interprovincial setup uh, was almost deliberately uh, manufactured, if you like, if you want to put it that way, uh, with the Irish team in mind, right? So um, you know we have provincial branches who are selecting the, their strongest players um, to try and get on onto an international team. So it, it goes back a long way the the kind of the rivalries and the interprovincial rivalries, but I. I think uh, um, during uh, the professional era in particular, um, that rivalry uh, becomes more apparent um, with Munster's early success in the professional era. Uh, and what ha- tends to ha- tended to happen, I think, in the media in particular, was um, Munster's success was always compared to Leinster's failure. Uh, and sometimes, you know, there was accusations, like you said, that, oh, the, the Leinster boys just don't have the spine for it. Um, you know, that, 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 it's, that it's the kind of Munster's grit uh, and... Um, you know the the idea of of Limerick, for example, being at the heart of of, of Munster's um, mental strength and getting him over the line again and again, uh, and the Leinster boys uh, just didn't have it. So that's the way the nar- the narrative was spun. Um, but I, I I think Leinster were always very very close, maybe closer than than we remember, um, and it, it just re- required I, I suppose a, a little bit of of guile. Um, uh, and when uh, we have that um, famous uh, semi-final uh, be- at Crow Park uh, between Leinster and Munster, um, Leinster finally uh, get one over on Munster in the professional era, uh, and and the the rivalry has, I think, you know, from a, from a Leinster's perspective, I, I would I would say for sure. The rivalry has has become really, really important for for both teams, uh, arguably. Well, it's a brilliant new book, A History of Rugby in Leinster. It's published in hardback by Marion Press. The author, David Doolan. And David, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. And to end the show tonight, we're returning to O'Connell Street in Dublin to talk about the spire and, in fact, the various different options that were considered before it was constructed. Because, of course, this month marks the 21st anniversary of the unveiling of the spire on the 21st of January 2003. And to talk about the history of the spire, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show Donald Fallon, the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast and the author of of Three Castles Burning A History of Dublin in Twelve Streets and of course the brilliant new book The Lamplighters of the Phoenix Park A Unique History of One of Ireland's Most Famous Places which we talked about on the show a few months ago uh, Donald you're very welcome back Good to be here thank you So maybe let's just begin with the fact that the spire is 21 years old and yet no one really seems to love it <laughs> Yeah yeah. Well, I mean, how does a symbol make its way into the identity of a city and one way of judging this is to walk into uh, an art shop. So, if we, for example, Jam Art Prince in Temple Bar uh, and look at what is in the iconography of the city. What do locals hang in their houses? What do visitors want? And there's a couple of clear winners when you do that. I mean, the Pulbeck chimneys are light years ahead of everything from what I can see. You can have them in any variation you want. Candlesticks, risograph prints, laser cut Christmas tree ornaments, you name it. Uh, the Samuel Beckett Bridge is slowly but surely creeping in there as well. Uh, but the, the spire doesn't seem to hold that kind of place uh, in the heart of the city. And on one level, that, that's kind of fitting, isn't it? Because Nelson's Pillar was a very divisive monument in its day too. But yeah, even two decades on, more than two decades on at this point, uh, it hasn't really quite endeared itself to, to the locals. But it was intended to be the answer to what was a generations-long question. The Admiral is gone, but what should stand in his place? And as we'll get into today, in some ways the monument that was blown up was more Irish than what replaced it. I mean, Nelson's Pillar was made of Wicklow granite. It was the work of Francis Johnson, marvellous Irish architect whose work still dots the city. Uh, but maybe we didn't realise it at the time that the, the lesser Irish monument, we might say, fell and the spire rose in its place. I'm kind of surprised you wrote a great piece about this for the Irish Independent last year. And I'm kind of surprised that the Nelson, that Nelson's Pillar 
survived as long as it did. It lasted until 1966. And if someone hadn't blown it up, you know, it might have it might have stayed on for a few decades more. Now, maybe that was the fact that it was, you know, made of these Irish materials. Maybe the fact that it was such an iconic, you know, uh, image on on O'Connell Street that people didn't want to take it down. But I think it was probably unsustainable to keep up a, a monument to Horatio, Admiral Horatio Nelson. And maybe scale was in his favour. And I've always thought that with the Wellington testimonial as well. You know, for example, any monument that was easier to shift, Republicans generally did. So uh, Lord Gough comes to mind, for example. And when Gough went up, there was a, a lovely satirical song called Gough's Immortal Statue. And it was meant to be on O'Connell Street with the monuments speaking to each other. Uh, when Nelson heard about it, he shouted to Parnell, how long will I be left here? Now, Charlie, can you tell? You know, that these other monuments, the imperial monuments around the city wondered, is my time up soon? King uh, William of Orange, for example, on College Green, uh, King George II in St. Stephen's Green Park, they fell right across the city of Dublin and right across the island of Ireland. But I think the sheer scale of, of Nelson made it difficult. It had also been put up by a committee of kind of business interests in Dublin. And that's another interesting historical angle. Like, why was Nelson's pillar put up in the first place? One, I think it was right after, you know, the years of the United Irish Rebellions, plural. 1803 was a living memory. Uh, I think the commercial interests in Dublin were quite fond of Nelson in the sense that he'd reopened the seas to, to commercial trade and other things. But the people who'd put it up were people of interest uh, in the city who still were on the scene and who still had commercial interests in Dublin. So I don't think the city council or even Dáil Éireann had the authority to say, we're taking that thing down. It was put up by private money and it awkwardly remained there in the middle of the street. So when it did come down, there were various discussions and debates about what should go up in its place. And some of those are fascinating. Yeah. The idea of a monument to Patrick Pierce, and of course then linking to the 1916 Rising, the idea of doing something to honour James Joyce, you know, some very innovative ideas. Yeah, I actually ended up befriending um, Liam, Su- Liam Sutcliffe, who was the man who blew up Nelson's Pillar. Uh, and I met him of all places in the Castle Lounge, better known as Grogan's. And we talked about this at great length. And Liam was telling me that it was a time when the Republican movement was at a very low ebb. So kind of young volunteers were, you know, being trained essentially in blowing up uh, monuments or going into pubs and smashing television screens if they showed the British National Anthem at the end of the BBC's days broadcasting. There was nothing to do. It was a real low ebb. And I think in retrospect, looking back, he, I don't think, he, maybe it's fair to say he kind of came to regret it. And when we're talking about it, he said the older he got, the more he came to see that the pillar Whatever about Nelson, to many people it was just the pillar. You know, it was there in Ulysses. In its own strange way, it became a part of Dublin. And when it was gone, immediately the question was, well, what do we do? Some people wanted to rebuild it and to put someone more fitting on top. And over the years, there were all kinds of proposals. I mean, the the Virgin Mary was proposed at one point. (laughs) just extraordinary. Can you imagine the the, the, the Virgin Mary looking down over the shoppers of Dublin? Uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy was proposed by Mike Quill, Irish-American trade union organiser. He said, put Kennedy up there. Uh, Joyce himself was proposed in, I think, the 80s. And I really like that idea, actually, because it was a part of Joyce in Dublin. Uh, But we we could never agree on maybe who should stand there instead. You got other proposals in the 1980s. They asked people to vote for what they wanted in its place and they put a number of options on display in in the GPO uh, foyer and the winner was called the Millennium Arch. And think about the Champs-Élysées. That's pretty much what it was. It was this beautiful archway taller than the GPO uh, in the centre of O'Connell Street. The public voted for that one. Uh, the winner was announced on the Late Late Show, but then the city said, well, this wasn't legally binding. You know, This was just a fishing exercise for ideas. So it felt very bare. And as other things went up on the street, for example, um, Ushin Kelly's Jim Larkin statue, on the other side you had Anne Olivia, the fountain. Dubliners knew it as the floozy in the jacuzzi or you know any number of funny names. But I think as, as the monumental landscape of O'Connell Street continued to evolve and change, the bareness of the centre of the street was more and more apparent. And there was a real feeling, something has to go here. And what your research uncovered was that back in the 1980s, people were saying Dublin, O'Connell Street is in decline. It's being neglected. We need to rejuvenate it. So these are things that people were talking about last year uh, when you had the riot. There were people talking about it, you know, all the time that, you know, what's gone wrong with O'Connell Street and how can we fix it and how can we rejuvenate it? But this isn't a new problem. No, the rose-tinted glasses of how we view the past. I mean, we always presume that things were better in the past. But when you you go into the newspaper archives and you're searching O'Connell Street, especially 
actually from the early from the early eighties onwards, really, and it coincides with kind of new problems in the city and addiction. Uh, this question has been asked since the eighties: How do we fix O'Connell Street? How do we fix O'Connell Street? So there was a real sense of optimism actually uh, around the turn of the millennium for a couple of reasons. One. The, the, the spire was on the way, but two, I mean, the Lewis lines were going in too. And it finally felt like there'd be a, a, a sense of importance, if you will, uh, restored to O'Connell Street. And one thing they really focused on, and I think this is finally starting to work actually in more recent times, was to redevelop the centre of the street. You know, the what's a traffic island, but it's also it's still one of the widest streets in Europe, is great as a pedestrianised centre to the street. So to, to rejuvenate the street by focusing on the built environment of it. So how did we end up with the spire then? Because I think even the official name, the Monument of Light or something which no one uses at all. How, how did we end up with that? There were several proposals uh, that came in when they went, when they went looking for, for, a, for a, a final answer to the question. And if you read the newspaper archives, I mean, it plays out very comically. So not everyone whose proposal is defeated steps aside gracefully. Uh, Michal O'Neulan, fantastic character. He was the brother of, of Brian O'Neulan better known as Miles Nagopoline, better known as Flan O'Brien. Uh, he had his own proposal and was furious when the 120 metre tall spire won. And he said something to the effect of, it's going to turn the place into Lilliput. <laughs> it's, going to, it's going to make everything on the street look tiny. And he's threatened to run for election to the doll as a, quote, stop the spike candidate. <laughs> so there was a, a revolt, if you will, from some of the other proposals that had, that had gone in. Uh, people who had ideas in the 1980s were asking, well, what about going back to those ideas? What about the idea of the Millennium Arch? But Ian Ritchie swept ahead. And it's important to make the point, Ian Ritchie's a very distinguished architect, uh, award-winning buildings in Spain, in Germany, uh, in Italy. Uh, but at the same time, it was an architectural practice based in London, using foreign materials. So I can't overemphasize that point. Francis Johnson, who designed the pillar, he designed the General Post Office. You know, the RHA building was his work too fundamentally of this city, you know, someone who transformed Dublin. We talk about James Gandon's Dublin a lot. Francis Johnson's Dublin is equally important. So, yeah, it was only really, I think, at the turn of the millennium we realised what was gone was in its own way a very Irish monument. And, you know, some hilarious aspects and some hilarious details. The fact that it was meant to be self-cleaning, that you wouldn't have to spend any money on it. But of course, that turned out not to be the yeah, case. And yeah. a certain amount of money has to be used every year now to make sure it's uh, spick and span. Yeah, and Michal O'Neillan, he found the humour in all of this, you know, and he, the whole thing kind of played out actually like a newspaper column his brother Miles would have written back in the day. And there were other things before the spire that didn't point towards this being a success. So people might remember the Millennium Clock in the River Liffey, which was going to count down the seconds until the new millennium. It stopped working. You know, they, they discovered that it wasn't adequately waterproof. Uh, so the spire was initially christened the Millennium Spire. It's three years delayed when it goes up in 2003. I mean, it wasn't destined, it appeared anyway, to be a very successful pro uh, project. It hit so many obstacles along the way. Then there was the, the, the madness around the time capsule. And a rumour that spread across Dublin that there was a time capsule loaded with the treasures of early 19th century Dublin that had been buried with the spire. Uh, Frank Miles, the archaeologist who worked on the dig, he remembered how every day there were massive crowds of people just looking down into the hole. Have they found it yet? Have they found it yet? And in the end, it was revealed to be almost nothing in it. So... It was like a, a comedy, if you will, bit by bit as the story played out. Yeah, and the time capsule, it's again very much, it's its already dated, you know, the fact yeah. that you have an Argos catalogue and of course Argos is gone <laughs> gone now. Uh, menus from different, I think Domino's Pizza and Patrick Ebo's, so, you know, your fast food pizzas and, and your pubs. fine dining and, and pubs. The price but, of a pint across the city is in there. But uh, I remember talking to someone who worked on the archaeological dig and they said every day in September 2001, there were just massive groups of people looking down the hoardings. And one day they looked up at three o'clock and there was nobody there. And they said, where's everyone gone? And it was September 11th, 2001. Everyone had disappeared into the, you know, the local uh, electrical shops and public houses and everywhere else to just watch the screens in, in amazement. So it was a, a, a remarkable time. And yeah, on one level, that feels like so long ago. But it, it also feels like yesterday. There was also a proposal, I think, to call it after Brian Baru or to have something <laughs> yeah. named after Brian Baru. Yeah, Brian Baru was proposed. Yeah, Jan Gou people might remember Jan Goulet. Jan Goulet was a um, Breton nationalist who arrived in Dublin after the Second World War, as, as many of them did. They had good reason to hide Breton nationalists across the continent of Europe after the war. Uh, he wanted to build a, a statue of Patrick Pierce. 
that would be taller than the general post office. So can you, can you imagine Pierce looming large over uh, the GPO? But Brian Baru, yeah, was, was another proposal, which is just extraordinary. So I think people don't really properly comprehend just how tall it is. I think it's seven times the height of the GPO and it's, yeah. it sways, I think, one metre side to side when, when it's a particularly windy or stormy day. That, but I don't, th- and it has the, the light at the top, but I don't think, I think maybe it's because it's so tall or maybe because we don't have skyscrapers that we're looking over at it. It's maybe that, you know, the, the, the sheer scale of it doesn't really strike home. It's 121 metres tall. And I mean, to put that in, in context, I think off the top of my head, it's about three times the height of the pillar. And one of the, yeah, one of the proposals with the pillar was to, to remove it to the Phoenix Park and place it beside the Wellington testimonial. Wellington would have dwarfed the pillar by comparison. But 121 metres, I mean, in a city that never really built up, in the centre of town, Liberty Hall comes to mind. It's only 16 storeys high. It's not a particularly large feature still uh, on the landscape. Uh, the pullback chimneys, though, I think one thing that draws people to them, uh, you, can, you can see them as you're walking across, not just the, the, the south inner city of Dublin, but from across the river too. Some of the best views of them, I think, are actually kind of out by Clontarf along the promenade there. And I think the fact that there is two of them, there was originally one uh, in Poolbeg, but the fact that there are twins now, I think that contributes to their meaning as well. Uh, you too had them in that music video, Pride, in the name of love. People might remember The Courier, uh, the action movie set in Dublin. It opens with a, uh, an image of the Poolbeg chimneys. During the pandemic, they were utilised quite a lot as well. You know, there was uh, art depictions of them further apart, but still there. You know, the idea that we were all further apart, but still together. So maybe that's what it is with the Poolbeg chimneys that, that makes them so that makes them so iconic. They're also something that the emigrant sees as they're leaving and the returning Christmas child sees as they come back to Dublin. So I think there were all kinds of reasons we became emotionally attached to the Pulbeck chimneys in a way that we, we just haven't with the spire. And you can't really force things. You can't, you know, it's impossible to say what people will, will make these, form these attachments to yeah. and what they won't. But you know, sometimes uh, something can be erected like the Eiffel Tower, which apparently the, the people in Paris didn't really like or love. But over time, it became this great emblematic icon. But the Spire, after 21 years, it hasn't grown in popularity. And is that partly to do with the way O'Connell Street itself has been neglected? Or maybe it's the fact that it doesn't have those those roots, the connections with Ireland in terms of the construction. But... You know, it's it's it seems to be a combination of things. Yeah, and you had Nicola on earlier talking about the street in the broader sense. The things that people will fall for and which will become part of a city's identity sometimes can be quite surprising. So uh, when you're standing in the centre of O'Connell Street, for me, Cleary's clock comes to mind. And, you know, when the pillar went up, that was the joke in Dublin. I can, I can see Cleary's now, the pillar's gone. But the, the Cleary's clock and the fact that people meet under Cleary's clock, and I mean, I'm thinking about Philip Chevron from the Pogues, he wrote the beautiful song called Under Cleary's Clock. Uh, so Cleary's as a meeting place became really defining, really iconic in how people feel about the city of Dublin. Uh, people often met, you know, in a, a, a long time ago before online dating apps, you would meet someone under Cleary's clock. It was the place where young courting couples uh, would meet. So that's a commercial entity. That's essentially a piece of advertising, a beautiful clock nonetheless, but it's a piece of advertising for a department shop. How did it become so truly iconic in the story of the street. It's much smaller in scale. So you never know what people will take to their hearts and what will be what will become in the built landscape uh, so important to people. Okay, well, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to Donald Fallon tonight about the history of the spire in Dublin and also about the wider history and indeed the future. Donald Fallon, the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast and the author of The Lamplighters of the Phoenix Park. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition, our first show of the new year. My thanks to Marisa Sullivan, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.